we get to embark on a new mini-series today, and it's going to be touching on some kingdom principles. Interestingly, as we start to read through a lot of Jesus' own words, starting even early on in Matthew's gospel with the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, we understand that there are many paradoxical principles that have to do with being a kingdom disciple. And I had shared this story before several times over the years, but it seems to serve, it has crystallized itself in my mind about something that has to do with all of us and the way we can sometimes react to our circumstance and to God. And that as the time that the little visitor came down our chimney at the house that we lived in before we moved to Milan, and we heard a little something scurrying around in there, and our kids came up, and they interrupted me, and they said, Dad, there's something in our wood burner. And I thought, oh, they're just making things up. But I went all the way down to the basement, and sure enough, I looked in there. This is not my picture, by the way. I did not attempt to pick that squirrel up with my hand. Uh, it showed me what happens when some creature feels like you're there to harm it, and it just makes itself so frantic that I was afraid it was going to hurt itself running around inside that wood burner. Finally was able to get a cardboard box with a hole in the side, slip it down over in front of the door, slid open the little makeshift door of cardboard until it finally crawled into that box, shut the little hole again, and carried it up and outside into the woods. But that sort of seems to touch on how we human beings can react to God at times. Doesn't that sound like us sometimes? We get so frantic, and sometimes we're fighting His will, and we don't recognize that there's really only true freedom in surrender. And I think probably that squirrel said in its own little squirrel voice, I'd imagine it would be a husky little voice, it would say, okay, all right, I give up. I surrender. I understand you're not trying to hurt me now. You're going to carry me to freedom. And so I quit. I surrender. Now, I don't think it actually sounded like that, but in my imagination, that's what this squirrel's supposed to sound like. And I think that sometimes all of us feel like that little two-year-old us, the no, me, I do it phase of life. We get to feeling that way a lot about things, don't we? And we just want to fight to get our own way. And sometimes we don't understand that until we finally relax into the embrace of our mother when we're two years old and we realize, oh, she wants what's good for me. She's not here to make my life miserable. And then we can just breathe a sigh of relief and understand, I just need to surrender. And that's freedom. So interestingly, smack dab in the middle of a verse that we call the Lord's Prayer this passage. There are four words that don't have the word surrender in them, but they're all about surrender, and they're kind of power-packed. Those four words are, your will be done. Here's the context. In Matthew 6, Jesus is starting to teach a lot of these paradoxical principles about what does it mean to be a Jesus follower? How do I live out these paradoxical principles of the kingdom? And he says, here's how you can pray, something like this. And later he says, don't babble on with meaningless repetition like some of the pagans do. And what's really funny is that some people turn the Lord's Prayer into meaningless repetition. <laughs> so we have to be cautious and look at it for what he's saying. This is a model prayer. It's trying to give you a flavor for the things that are important as we pray, the attitude that we can bring with us in prayer. 
Here's the context. As we're talking to God then about our strongest, most urgent, innermost desires, we're supposed to say something like, God, your kingdom come, not my own, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And there's something important about Jesus' words about surrendering in order to be truly free because surrender only leads to freedom if you're surrendering, surrendering into the arms of somebody who knows you and loves you. That's what brings true freedom, which means that our attitude toward God depends on what we think about him. Does he really love us or not? Is he somebody who knows more than we do? Can we trust him? And the way we get to see that is through the cross, which we celebrated at communion. An attitude of surrender says, God, I trust your plan even more than my own, and so I'm willing to lay down my plan and pick up your plan instead. It says, I trust that you can see a lot farther than I can, and you know the outcome of this circumstance, and so I trust you. Or it says, I'm willing to set aside my own small will, <laughs> and I'm ready to start trusting that your will is actually better for me than my will. So let's look at surrender for just a few minutes today. First, we need to know what surrender is not according to Christ, according to the Bible. Okay, It's not passivity. It's not giving up, maybe like that squirrel. <laughs> okay, I just give up. That's not surrender. It's not losing control. It's not accepting defeat. So what is it? And why would Jesus say that we have to surrender in order to be free? If he teaches things that give us life more abundant, which he said he had come to do, I've come to give you life and to give it more abundantly and free, then what sort of benefit is there to surrender? Well, here's what surrender is, according to Christ. It's a courageous, intentional choice. It's willful. We're surrendering our will to his, and we make a willful decision to operate on what we know his will to be rather than my own. It's taking charge of a seemingly impossible situation. It's recognizing who's really in charge instead of feeling like we're supposed to be. Examples, and he gives them in his Sermon on the Mount. Somebody commands you to do something and they have the authority to make you do that thing. You can try to fight it, you can try to resist it, but they have the authority. So they have to make you do that, or they can make you do that, and you have to do it. So what do you do? Do you fight it all the way, tooth and nail, or do you give up and say, okay, I see that pack, and I raise it a mile. <laughs> I'm going to carry your pack, and I'm going to carry it more than you're commanding me to carry it, because I'm only commanded to do it for one, but if I carry it two, suddenly I know who's really in charge. I'm doing this for God's sake, not for my own, and I have, in a sense, taken control of that situation in a way that flips the script on an authority that might be rude, rude. How about somebody asks you for your coat? Give them your inner coat, too. If you have the overcoat and you've got two coats on, give them the inner one as well. Maybe where the phrase, somebody was so generous they would give the shirt off their back. Maybe this is where that came from. Sure, give them your tunic if they're really that in need. Or repay evil with good. Those sound so paradoxical, don't they? Especially compared with the world's system. But what does a paradoxical disciple have to surrender in order to follow Christ more fully? Well, preconceived notions like, if it is to be, it's up to me. We hear that a lot, and we tend to try to have that all-American, let's pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps mentality. 
If it is to be, it's up to me. It's all up to me. Surrender says, no, it's not. <laughs> it's all up to God. Or I, I just have to make this person see and understand what they have to do. Nope. <laughs> That's the Spirit's job. Or grace is really great. I love grace. But good works is kind of like extra credit. <laughs> no. It's all by grace that we have been saved. God's work spills over. His grace in our life spills over into the good works that he preordained for us because the have to is replaced with a want to. And that's the big shift that so many people chafe at. We don't understand that when somebody wants to do something, they want to do something out of love for that person who gave all for us instead of a have to. And so it's not any kind of credit. I know we joke, I joke, too much probably about giving away living water points. I hope you know that that's a joke. There are no extra credit points for doing things. It should be all out of the goodness of our heart growing out of a gracious relationship. Personal pet areas of my life is another thing we have to surrender. Sometimes we'll get to that point where we're saying, you know, Jesus, I trust you with all these other areas of my life, except this one. I'm going to protect this one. I really don't want to give this one up just yet. And sometimes God's Holy Spirit will shake us up and we'll, help, uh, we'll be uh, aware that he's trying to say, no, it, that's the one I want. The one you're protecting is the one I want you just to completely surrender to me. So what's the benefit to surrender? Oh, it's sweet fruit. It's really sweet fruit of surrender. Peace in the middle of chaos, for one thing. I don't know if you've experienced those times when you've just been frantic and you've finally gotten into God's Word and the Spirit speaks to you or you're in worship and you listen to music and the song just touches your heart and suddenly you're flooded in your soul with that sense of peace that passes all understanding. It's sweet fruit. That's what happens when we surrender and we quit trying to make it all about us. It's all up to me. Another sweet fruit of surrender is a deep well of life-giving Christ-like love even for the unlovely. I remember one pastor talked about they had a homeless ministry in their church because they were in a downtown city. And there was a guy who was being brought up to the altar. And he got up to him and recognized that he hadn't had a bath in a couple of weeks. And it was tough just to be around him because, whew. And he, he started to pray with the guy and say, and I'm going to give you to this man over here because he's going to take you to our shelter and to our cupboard because we have some food for you and we're happy. He goes, no, I, I'm not here for that. He goes, oh, I'm sorry, you're not. He says, no, I'm responding to your invitation to the message. I need to accept Christ. And the pastor said, God just broke me in that moment because I had preconceived notions all about what was going on, and I realized that there's just joy that bubbles up inside us when we join God in what he's doing instead of all these preconceived notions that we have about ourselves or about other people. There can be joy in the fellowship of suffering, Sometimes, even when you're in the middle of a difficult situation, I've been in several times when I've been helping people through the valley of the shadow of death of a loved one, and there's that significant sacred turn that happens when people recognize that God is present and in the midst of what's going on there. And there's joy. I've talked with people after the fact, and the next morning I said, how's everybody doing? I did a uh, co-officiated a memorial service about three weeks ago, in fact. And I called the day after the mom uh, of my friend had passed away. And he goes, well, there were a lot of tears, but most of them were happy tears. 
Because we were standing around realizing that all that stuff that she'd been telling us about, that she really believed about Christ, was true, and that she was in heaven now, and there's no more memory loss, there's no more physical abnormalities, all that stuff is gone. So yeah, there were a lot of tears, but it was tears of joy, if that makes sense. And I said, oh, it makes perfect sense. Fortunately, we have a great example of what surrender is supposed to look like. It's in the person of Jesus. He modeled that same kind of surrender that he gives, gives to us and allows us to model to others so they can see Jesus in us. Garden of Gethsemane. You probably know the story. He gave up his personal desire. What was his desire? Oh, Father, let this cup pass from me. If you've been in the midst of a crisis, you probably prayed stuff like that. God, please, if you can just help me avoid going through this awful crisis. That's my will. That's my preference. But Jesus said, but your will be done, even above his own. Yes, he wanted to escape that, but he said, but your will is greater. Or his right to retaliate. Oh, this is a tough one for us. Because the desire for revenge, we get these revenge fantasies that we just feed off of when somebody has hurt us in some way. And we want to retaliate, but Jesus gave that up too. He says in Matthew 26, 53, don't you realize that I could ask my heavenly Father to send thousands of angels to protect us, and he would send them instantly. But he didn't. He surrendered his will to God's will so that he could accomplish the one thing he needed to accomplish on our behalf. Atonement, forgiveness of sin. Now here's one vital theological truth, and I want you to catch this one. If you're ready to catch it, say, I'm ready to catch it. Okay. Jesus' courageous choice to surrender set in motion divine atonement on a cosmic scale. His atonement allowed us, us, we sinful human beings who were separated from him by sin, he allowed us to have his forgiveness. And that sets in motion our own ability to courageously surrender in our own lives on a regular basis. Why would he do that? Because he invites us into this whole process of redemption so that other people can get on that same path that we've been on. And they see it more clearly when we're acting out of surrender of our will just the way he acted in Gethsemane. When we surrender to Christ, our lives demonstrate what he demonstrated on the cross for us. That's when we demonstrate to others that it's really not all about us. It's not. We sure think it is, but it's not. We're not self-sufficient. We're reminded that that sweet fruit of surrender is the only way to true freedom. And the only way we can surrender the way Christ did is by trusting in his atonement for us. So how does this happen? This could be called the children's sermon portion of this program, but you adults are allowed to listen in as well. There's a Frenchman named André Cassans, and he invented a thing called l'écran magique. It means the magic screen. Lines are drawn on the screen, drawn, as knobs are turned because there's some aluminum powder that coats the inside of the glass on that screen. And those things are hooked up to some little things, and that moves a stylus. And every time the stylus comes in contact with that, it scrapes off a little of that aluminum, leaving what appears to be a black line. And some people are really proficient at doing some. I've seen some amazing art done with that. I could never get that very well because you have to get both quadrants, you know, the X and the Y axis is going at the same time. 
more than 100 million little magic screens sold in his lifetime. He invented it in his basement when he was about 30 years old. He died back in 2010, I think he said, in the, his 80s, 83 or something. And he watched over 100 million of these things sell. So what's so attractive about it? What's so great about it? Well, you simply turn them upside down, give them a good shake, and voila. <laughs> the slate is wiped clean, and you get to start over with a new picture. You see where this is going? That's a great picture of what Jesus did for us when he atoned for our sins on the cross. He gives us a good shake when we understand, oh, I'm a sinner and I'm in need of this forgiveness. And then all of a sudden, he presents us as absolutely a clean slate. He gives us a do-over because of his atonement for us. And then he starts drawing into our own heart his own image rather than the paltry little image we were trying to create in our own strength. Like the magic screen, I like this analogy, sin makes its mark on the screen of our lives. The evidence is clear, and when sin and bitterness and unforgiveness writes itself onto our screen, the evidence of that sin is there for everybody to see. Often they can see it before we can even see it in ourselves. It's not pretty. But when we're reminded of what Jesus did for us, like we were reminding ourselves today in communion, and when we trust in his forgiveness, guess what happens? Once again, he comes along. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just. He gives us a good shaking once again with the Holy Spirit, and he wipes the slate clean once again because he's constantly in that business of renewing us. And our minds are renewed, and our attitude is refreshed, and we realize, oh, I get to continue to live in this forgiveness. It's not a one-time shot. It's not one and done. We get to start over every day because his faithfulness is made do, new every morning. And here's how some people react to, to this idea. Okay, let me, let me understand that there are skeptics and people out there who would disagree with a couple of things that the New Testament says. Redeemed? Sure. I like that. Owned? Uh, I don't know about that one. <laughs> I'm not so sure about that. Here's a part of the redemption story that some people really react negatively to. Paul wrote some tough truths, and they tend to rub people the wrong way, honestly. He said in 1 Corinthians 6, the last half of verse 19 and the first half of verse 20, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. Now, the part of Paul's writing that people love to quote is this. This is from Romans when they say, if you openly declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. They love that part. It's the owned part that gives them trouble. <laughs> they want to be saved. They love the Savior, but it's the Lord part that really starts to rub them the wrong way. But here's the question. Can you really be saved without a Lord? That's a good question. We need to explore that for a minute. We human beings have a strong tendency to want an exempt, a pass, a good hard pass on condemnation. You hear people all the time, oh, judge not, lest ye be judged. Don't judge me, man. You know, we don't want any condemnation. We don't want judgment. We want that kind of freedom. But the scriptures and Jesus Christ who lived these scriptures out, and this is the the Jesus that Paul wrote so eloquently about in Romans and in the letters to the Corinthians, 
He's saying, yeah, but there's more to this whole kingdom principle, the paradoxical principle of surrender, than just the saved part. That's the beginning of the journey. That's great. And it's vital. We need it. There's that justification that happens when we trust Christ for the first time. It's just as if it never happened, justification. But then there's that lifelong sanctification. He's building his image into us, and he's continuing to shake us and clean the slate again and again and again until we look more and more like him. And how can you do that without a Lord? You can't say, I want the salvation part. I want the ticket punched. Yeah, I want to go to heaven. Woo, got it. But I really don't have any desire to go through with this followship, this discipleship, when it means that I have to surrender my will because I still want to do all these things that I want to do, and I want to do them my way. Pastor Steve Gregg, who grew up through the Jesus Revolution era, Chuck Smith, um, some of that stuff that happened in California, author of that book that we put out that you can listen to, The Empire of the Risen Sun, S-O-N, he said, he's making some analogies, he said, Wanting to be saved without surrendering our lives to Jesus is like wanting to be a married bachelor. Or it's wanting to sell your house without surrendering the title to the new owner. Why would you do that? Sure, it sounds great if we could all have all the benefits of a loving God, all that he has to offer, but without any consideration about what he desires that my life might be like, without any consideration for how much it cost him. We're saved. This is what we celebrate in communion. We're saved because Jesus redeemed us with his own blood. He literally gave his life so that we could have that freedom. So it kind of seems like a slap in the face for us to say, give me all the benefits, Lord, but don't tell me what to do with my life. We're redeemed because he paid the ransom price, because Paul says that we were held ransom in bondage to sin and death, and Christ freed us from that. And he did that because of what he gave up on our behalf. But if you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you are saved. God has forgiven your sins. Good for you. That's great. That's not all of discipleship. It's the start of the journey. And I think, honestly, people in our denominations and some people in evangelical circles today have camped out so much on the once saved, always saved. If you said the sinner's prayer, if you signed the card, if you got baptized, you're good, you're covered, and then they can go and live whatever way they want to live the rest of their lives. Jesus just flatly does not teach that. Doesn't mean that we're saved by works. We're saved by grace, but it's that grace that propels us into a want-to attitude because now we're spilling over with a desire to love that person back. Some of you, uh, the younger folks that just got married recently, you might remember that time when suddenly you think, oh, you've stolen my heart. You have made it captive. I'm yours. Hook, line, and sinker. Take me. Whatever it Whatever it costs me, I don't care. I just can't see my life without you. I need you in my life for the rest of my life. See, that's true love. So if we're going to be held captive by somebody like that, I'm a slave to you. We mean that in the best possible sense, and that's what Paul is saying. He says, I'm a bond slave to Christ, not because he's a mean, evil dictator, but because he gave up so much for us that we fall in love with him. And when we do, we want to do the stuff that he would have for us because we know he loves us and he wants what's best for us.
big attitude shift. And people are still free to reject the terms. They are. Today, we're not forced to accept the terms of Jesus' redemption like they could do back then. Wouldn't make much sense, but even back then, when Jesus was teaching these things, a person who came along and said, I'm going to redeem that slave. I'm going to pay the sin price. I'm going to pay the redemption price. That slave had the right to refuse it, to say, nope, I'm going to stay in slavery. Thank you very much. I enjoy making bricks with no straw. <laughs> I enjoy being told what to do every day by this other person who's a dictator. I don't want your kind of freedom. They could have said that, but who does that? And I think because people don't understand today the love that comes behind God's demands on our life, they continue to want to stay in slavery rather than saying, yes, of course, I will run away from this other slavery of the stuff that I've created for myself because the consequences of my own actions have created such pain in my life. I, I'm desperate to be owned by this guy, and I've fallen in love with him, and I want to do what he wants me to do. There can be no such thing as being bought with a price without also being owned. The one who redeems takes ownership of the one who has been acquired through this purchase. And so it, Jesus knew that in his culture. And Paul knew that, which is why he speaks to that. In our culture, that seems foreign to us. It's like, what are you saying, that God is making us a slave? Sure, if you want to call it that, but it's like being a slave to that person that you fall in love with. It's so different. Let's get one thing clear, though. It's his kingdom that we live in if we're a follower of Christ. And he's the king. We're not. He's a loving, generous, all-gracious king, but he's still the king. <laughs> so when we accept the terms of redemption, we say, yes, Jesus, you are not only my Savior, but I'm wanting voluntarily to make you Lord of my life. I surrender to you now. Everything I own belongs to you. Take me as I am and transform me into your image. I choose to follow your will and not my own. Or if we're fighting him tooth and nail, then we might have to say, okay, I give up. Like that squirrel. And we finally give up and say, oh, I've made such a mess because I keep trying to do things. And God, I, I know I can't do it without you. I need you. I'm desperate for you. So what's the number one thing we human beings tend to continually hang on to instead of surrendering it into God's will? You know what I think it is? And the reason I think this is because of the frequency that it shows up in the New Testament writings, especially in the letters from Paul and Peter. It's forgiveness. I think it's the one thing that we human beings struggle with just about more than anything else. And there's so many things that start to have a domino effect that deeply affect our lives in negative ways because we have a small offense and we won't let it go and we haven't let it go and we haven't forgiven and we still have bitterness. And we don't want to admit that we have bitterness, but we do. And it starts to mar the picture on our etch-a-sketch of our heart. And we need to get shaken. We need the Holy Spirit to grab a hold of us and give us a good shake. Turn us upside down. Turn our lives upside down and remind us, you can't move forward past this point in your life without forgiveness. And I've shown you how you can forgive because it's possible because I did it. I gave up my own life for you. I gave up my life and poured out my blood for you. That's what it cost me. Are you not willing to forgive the way that I've forgiven you? That was Job's situation. You know what? Here's a concept nobody wants to talk about, but it's true. We see it in the book of Job. 
Often, the one person we really need to forgive most is God. People think, wait, what? He doesn't need to be forgiven. Yeah, but sometimes we treat God as though he's done something wrong. We'll say, okay, yeah, I'm going to forgive this person these little things, but God, I'm really mad at you because you allowed this thing to happen. Isn't that tantamount for causing it in your mind? I mean, whether you allowed it or caused it, you could have intervened. Why didn't you intervene? Babies are dying. People are dying from cancer far too young. Car accidents are happening. They're taking people away. And We had COVID and a pandemic and all this terrible stuff in the world. I'm mad at you, God. And sometimes the one person we need to forgive so that we can unlock everything that he has to pour out into us as we surrender, we need to forgive him. How do we do that? We look to the cross. As we focus on what he did for us, then we think, okay, God, forgive me. I have thought terrible things. I realize that you really are a loving God, and you proved it. Because even while I was still railing against you, even while I was still a sinner, you died for me. That's how much you loved me. And then we say, God, forgive me for all those things I thought about you. I forgive you. Weird concept. But it can be life-altering. You know what God did for Job? Job met him in his suffering. Job poured his heart out to him, and God was saying, Are you God? Were you there when I laid the foundations of the earth? Job had to say nope to all the questions, and finally God was basically just saying, Job, sometimes you're just going to have to trust that I know more than you do, and that I still love you despite the bad things that have happened in your life. It all comes down to trust. Do we trust God enough to say, God, I trust you in this situation, and I'm going to choose to love you back knowing that you have forgiven me and I'm going to let go of some of the stuff that has plagued me and kept me back. So by getting into God's presence, by being reminded that he's God and that we're not, by saying, I surrender all, then we're praying that God will release some of that stuff, that he'll shake us up and clean our slate, so to speak. And when that happens, although it can be a little traumatic, it can be so freeing. That sweet fruit of forgiveness and surrender can be ours. Let's pray together, and then we're going to sing a song of surrender so that we can do business with God, and you can pour your heart out to him and say, I surrender all. Let's pray. Father, this is a subject that it touches every single one of us because all of us have struggled with and may still be struggling with letting go of things in our lives that plague us. And some of that boils down to unforgiveness. And I pray that as we surrender all to you, our preconceived notions, our unforgiveness, our bitterness, thoughts that we just can't keep kicking out of our head and we keep rehearsing the same stories again and again and again instead of moving on to a new chapter and saying, okay, that thought came into my mind, but I'm going to put it aside, and with your Holy Spirit at work, I'm going to quench that fiery dart that Satan threw at me so I don't have to go down that road again. I'm taking on a clean slate from you, and I'm moving forward by letting go of that bitterness. Please forgive me and help me to forgive as you have forgiven me. Help us do that as we sing to you in this time of worship, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.